Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for what we just sang, um, these ancient words that we're about to look at, um, 2,000, almost 2,000 years old, words of truth that are still changing lives today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are in the business of changing lives by the power of your spirit. I thank you for each one here and, Lord, the change project that has begun in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that the change project would not stop for anyone in this room. That you would, con that we would all continue to be maturing and transforming into the, into what you've called us to be in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use the message this morning towards that end. That you would use it to grow us up in our faith in Jesus. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. Alright, well if you have a Bible, or if you've got your pew Bible close to you, you can turn to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be in the second half of chapter, well, the beginning and up to the middle of chapter 3 today. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 15. Before we dive into reading these verses, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a grown-up act like a child? How many of you who are adults know that you've acted like a child before. You want to see me act like a child? Put me in front of a Pixar movie. And I shriek like a little girl or something. I mean, it's kind of funny. Anyhow, my kids are laughing. Yeah, I laugh when I see these movies, and it's, I'm, I'm laughing with the little kids. I don't know what it is. Um... We also act like children, though, in a lot sadder ways. How many of you have ever seen a mom or a dad in the store carrying on with their two- or three-year-old on the same level, like acting like a three-year-old? How many have ever been that mom or dad? Have you ever yelled at an animal, maybe a pet, like a little kid who doesn't understand that that animal doesn't understand words. You're, you're screaming at this dog like it can understand you, but it can't. Right? Like, well, kids do that. Grown-ups do when they act like kids. This morning, in this passage that we're tackling, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church they're acting like kids. Like Babies, baby Christians, even though by now they should be big boys and girls in their walk with Jesus. And Paul's proof of this, well, he's got a lot of proof because he's got a whole letter of things that they're acting immature about. But in this section, his proof is that the way that they're just fighting over these different church leaders, including himself, and dividing is, is, is they're just thinking about it in completely worldly categories. It's like, my daddy's stronger than your daddy. My pastor's better than your pastor. Like, those, those are the type of fights that are going on. He says, mature Christians don't think like that. We've talked a lot about this in the past few weeks, about leadership in the church. So I'm not going to kind of set the stage about what was going on in Corinth too much right now. Just remember, they're fighting over leaders, and that's the backdrop for all of this. And just remember that the reason they're doing this is because they've got a lot of mental baggage that they've picked up from the world. Whenever any of us come to Christ, come to Jesus, listen, if you come to Jesus from a lifetime of not following Jesus or not really walking with him, you have a lot of baggage, right? Things that are coming with you from the world that you have to every day bring under the lordship of Christ. Remember how, okay, this is how I used to think about that. 
How does Jesus the King want me to think about that now? And it's a daily thing. And what Paul's saying to the Corinthians here, we're going to see, is you've been trying to bring your life under the Lordship of Jesus for years now, but you're, nobody could tell. You're, you're still living the same way. The way of Jesus seems foreign to them. And so Paul says, I still have to talk to you as if you're little kids in Christ. We still have to have the same conversations that I did when I first was there. That's the way the world thinks. That's not the way that you should think. We could be talking about other things, but we still got to go back to the, don't hit your sister. That's me. That type of stuff, right? Rather than like talking about, you know, big kid conversation. All right. So Paul, that's, that's the setting stage. Okay. Let's now, now see if you can hear that as I, as I read now. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 15. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So when he first got there, and led them to the Lord. He gave them milk because they weren't ready for it. You're still not ready for solid food. It's like imagine a mom nursing a kid in his 20s. Like what? That, you're, they're, they're, Paul's been gone for like 20 years, right? These people have been Christians for a long time. You're not ready for this. Your solid food is for the mature. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Talking about himself. Only servants, slaves, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each his task. So why are you boasting about your servants? My servants better than your servants. What? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants, neither the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. There's a lot in these verses. I'm just going to try to boil it down. Here's the main idea. Paul's telling Christians this. He says, don't fight about church leaders, because church leaders serve you, and you all belong to God. So don't fight, because church leaders are your servants. And all of you together belong to the greatest king of all, God, through, through Christ. Okay? And we're going to unpack what he says in, in four steps today. First, Paul says a statement, and then he says three things that support that statement. So here's the statement. In verses 1 to 4, basically he says, babies fight about church leaders, and you're acting like babies. That's, I mean, the Corinthians... They really got to put their big boy pants on to read this letter, right? I mean, he's, Paul is coming at him hard. You're still, like, acting like a little kid. And you should be acting like grown-ups. Fighting about church leaders is immature. Second, verses 5 to 15, he just gives some reasons. Here's his reasons. 
In verses 5 to 9, he says, he uses a picture. He says, church leaders are like God's farmhands. They're like farmers. And you are like God's field. And they're working in God's field. Why do you put the farmer on a pedestal? He can't make it sunny. He can't make the rain come. He can't make stuff grow. He just works in the fields. God is the one who makes the miracle growth happen. And then um, he says in verses, uh, oh, and then he says, uh, we all belong to God together. You are God's field, God's building. So first he's like, church leaders are God's farmhands. The second thing he says is, and we all belong to God. And then the third thing is, we're construction workers. All right, and we see that in verses 10 to 15. God's church leaders, they're working on a project that's way bigger than them, for which they will actually be judged by God. So why are you fighting or quarreling about them? So this is Paul's main point. And we'll jump right into, um, don't, you know, basically don't fight about church leaders. That's immature because church leaders are your servants and because you all together belong to God. So first, let's look at church leaders. Fighting over them is immature. Verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere babes or infants in Christ. I gave you milk. Remember, that's when he first came and talked to them about Jesus. He first came to know Christ, and he's like, you're a baby Christian. Brand new. I'm giving you milk. Here's your bottle. Not solid food. You weren't ready for it yet. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, remember jealousy and quarreling about church leaders, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For, and now he explains, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not acting like mere human beings? So in these verses, Paul says, I need to talk baby talk to you guys. And the reason is you're bickering and quarreling and being jealous of each other and of your leaders and different positions and power. It's like, well, lucky you. You're friends with the Apostle Peter. Well, I'm friends with Paul. In fact, I've got Paul's cell phone number in my pocket. Now, they didn't have cell phones back then. But, oh, well, you're friends with Apollos? Well, I'm friends with Jesus. He's the one I follow. And so they were they were jealous. They were having quarrels. Peter stayed at your house when he visited us. And that makes me really upset. Or Paul baptized me. We saw that in chapter 1. They're fighting about who got baptized. It's like, well, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. It's like, whoa, guys. This is not the way we think about it. You're acting just like the people who follow these public speakers that come into town and their disciples getting squabbled. My teacher's better than your teacher and my teacher has more money than your teacher and my teacher's more smart than your teacher. I mean, they're acting the same way, like kids on the playground fighting about whose daddy is bigger or stronger or makes more money. You're acting like the world does, says Paul. Literally, and some of your translations probably have this, the word is fleshly. You're acting fleshly. You, worldly is a good translation. You, you are acting fleshly. You haven't learned to walk by the Spirit, to live and love like Jesus. Now, <clears throat> there's, a, there's something I want to make you aware of here. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you are living in a worldly way, in a fleshly way. Back in the 1800s, some very sincere Christians began to popularize a particular view of this passage and several others, and of the whole Christian life that grew like wildfire. Okay, And, and it's still around today, though much, much less <coughs> popular. But it's alive in certain circles of Bible teaching. Certain Bible colleges have, have kept this alive. And 
And this teaching says that there's two categories of Christians. There's carnal Christians, and there's spirit-filled Christians. <coughs> spiritual Christians. And as you read these verses, carnal is a word for fleshly. So there's two types of Christians. There's a fleshly Christian and a spiritual Christian. And you don't want to be a fleshly Christian. You want to be a spirit-filled Christian. Two different categories of Christians. And as you read this passage, you probably see that that might flow naturally from this text if you read it a, a certain way. What these folks began to say, though, these, these teachers, and um, is, is they said uh, there's a category of Christians who are still saved. They're still going to heaven, but they're <coughs> fleshly Christians. They're carnal. They live 100% by and for the sinful flesh. So what they'll say, for example, let's say that a parent has a child that walks away from Jesus. The child makes a profession of faith at the age of eight, is baptized, and then walks away from Jesus in college. And let's say this kid in college, he's not religious at all. If you asked him if he's a Christian, he'd say, absolutely not, I'm an atheist. And he has no interest in Jesus, no interest in the Bible, he denied the Bible... He's completely devoted to sexual immorality, to substance abuse, and yet, folks in this camp, if you push them, and again, this is a smaller group, but I'm not, I don't want to name names because there's a lot of different uh, movements that are built up around this type of teaching. They will say to the parents who are broken over their kids, it's okay. Once saved, always saved. Your kid is going to heaven because he made the profession he prayed the prayer. He's just a carnal Christian. Okay? Friends, <clears throat> this is a misguided teaching. Alright? And it's based in this passage. This kid doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to be his king. Heaven, if he were to get there, would be hell to him. Why would he want to go to heaven when he doesn't want Jesus to be his king? He's, he doesn't believe he's real. He's turned away. It was a false profession of faith. It wasn't really real. And there's so many places that we could go in the Bible to show that persevering faith is a finishing faith. And it is faith that saves. What Paul is saying in these verses is different. The, Christ, the Corinthians, they are not like this young man in my illustration. They still consider themselves Christians. They boast about their knowledge of the things of God and the way of Jesus. They think they're great Christians. We're filled with knowledge about the, the things of Christ, they think. The Spirit is at work in them. We saw that earlier. Paul praised God that they've been enriched in knowledge and in wisdom about Jesus. Yet they're acting fleshly. They're going back to their old ways. They're not a different category of Christians. They're just Christians who've been stunted in their spiritual growth. They're baby Christians. Just like adults can act like babies, they're still adults. They're just acting like babies. Right? They've still been Christians for a long time, but they're going back to their old ways. Even years into their Christian journey, they should have known better. That's what Paul's saying. See that in verse 2? I gave you milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. He's referring to the time he was with them. When he first led them to the Lord, it was like he fed them with a bottle. But he's saying now, you're still so much like the sinful world, the, the fleshly world. That you left when you followed Jesus. You're worldly. I can't even talk to you like adult Christians. Think about it like this. Would you have the birds and the bees talk with a three-year-old? Hopefully not. They're not ready for it. They don't have categories for it yet. Think about the talk you might have with a 20-year-old. Hopefully it wouldn't sound like this. Um, Johnny, don't scream in the store. Johnny, don't hit your sister. Johnny, don't take your clothes off and run around the yard. Um, this is the type of conversation that Paul's having to have with the Corinthians. Okay? Stop. And, and we're going to see more conversations like that. 
right? Stop suing each other all the time. Stop, you know, tolerating this terrible sin. Stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And on and on it goes. You're acting like the world. It's not saying you're a completely different type of Christian. They're still saying they're Christians. They're still meeting on Sundays. They're still following Jesus. But there is a lot of sin in their life that they're slipping back into. And it is calling, the, are they genuinely following Jesus? And Paul will go there and say, examine yourselves to see if you're still in the faith. He'll say that in 2 Corinthians. We'll talk more about that in days to come. But what we see now, Paul's saying, stop acting immature about this. And now he's going to start piling up his reasons. Verses 5 to 9 is reason 1. Church leaders serve you as God's farmhands. I'll read these verses. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are God's co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. All right. This is important to understand for this passage. In the ancient world, Paul's day, everybody, for the most part, almost everybody, belonged to somebody. Okay? Most people in the ancient world were slaves. They belonged to a master. Who your master was meant the world to you. There was great pride to be found in working for a great and glorious master. I am part of Caesar's household. I get all the perks. So yeah, there's some downsides, but I am part of, you know, Barnabas's household. Whatever, whoever your master was, you got status and honor by being connected to somebody. Okay. Students basically belong to their teacher. I am a disciple of this rabbi or this philosopher. Or I'm a follower of Plato or of Socrates or of Plutarch. Whoa. Well, I'm a follower. Who you belong to was everything. Children belong to parents. Women belong to their husbands in a very possessive way in patriarchal system that we don't have this way. Yeah, it's quite the same now. All citizens belong to the emperor of Rome. We belong to Caesar. And the more powerful and honorable the person you're connected to, the greater was your status. And here's the thing. We still have this impulse today. The categories are a little different. But it feels good to be connected in some way to somebody important. Okay? Think of the kid who loves to tell their other kids on the team, my dad is the coach. You ever seen that in the league? Oh, my dad is the coach. And if my dad says I can be pitcher all time, then my dad says I can pitch full time. Or whatever. It's like suddenly he's more important than the other kids on the team because he has connections. We could pile up a lot of examples of this. I'm friends with the mayor. Oh, yeah? Well, I work for the governor of our state. Well, I work for the president. I can text him right now. You know, like, what? See, in my contacts, ooh, all, the, all these big names, whoa, you're important. In the Christian world, this can happen too. I went to this amazing seminary. Ooh, I went to a better one. I have all these really important pastors' cell phone numbers. Yeah? Well, so-and-so signed my book. Or whatever it is. We, I, I, we can go on and on, okay? And this is what the Corinthians were doing with their church leaders. And here's what's wrong with all this. It turns leadership and church leadership on its head. Instead of priding themselves in belonging to a famous apostle, the Christians should view the apostles and the pastors as belonging to them. 
They are their servants. So instead of saying, I belong to Paul, they should say, Paul belongs to the church of Jesus. Do you see the difference there? Paul, the great apostle Paul, is a slave of Jesus and belongs to Jesus' church. Jesus himself says this, Mark 10, 43-45. Listen to what Jesus says, how Jesus turns the way the world thinks about power and status and being connected to people. He says this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I'm your ruler, and you're my servant, and your only hope of anything is being connected to me. He says, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Mark 10, 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all the church leaders that the Corinthians are proud of associating with them... They serve together as co-workers. And the church itself is like God's field, a garden of the Lord. Church leaders are like farmhands, hoeing in the garden together, planting in the garden together, working in the garden of the Lord. They plant the seed of God's word in people's lives. Another person comes along and waters that seed with prayer, with ongoing teaching, ongoing discipleship. But ultimately, God is the one that makes anything grow. See that in verse 5 to 9? Paul plants, Apollos waters, God makes the growth. They are co-workers, verse 9, laboring in God's field for the reward that they will receive from God himself. The next thing I want you to draw, draw your attention to is just what Paul says in verse 9. Another reason, not only do church leaders belong to you, but everybody, Christians, all Christians alike, including leaders, belong to God. See that in verse 9? We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So we belong to God, and you belong to God as well. Team players. So... All the pastors, think about this, all the pastors and church leaders, anybody teaching in any capacity in the churches in this area, we're team players. Working together for God in God's service. When another pastor baptizes ten people, it ought to be celebrated by everyone in the region. That is a win for Jesus. Okay? It's like when you're playing soccer, okay, and you're a fullback, that's back by the goal, your goal, okay, and somebody on the front line scores a goal, and he's celebrating, you celebrate too, even though you didn't score that goal, because the team scored. This team mentality, that's basically what Paul's saying, just a different me metaphor here, where Team, when, when, when we have a big crop, a harvest, we all celebrate because we all work for it. Then notice what Paul says about Christians. He says, you are God's field, God's building. By field, Paul means a crop field, a garden. And by building, Paul means God's temple. He makes that abundantly clear in verses 16 to 17. We'll look at that next week. The church is God's temple. He says that. You are God's temple, in verse 16. But here Paul says you're God's building. A house that belongs to God. And God dwells in that house by his spirit. That's what the church of Christ is. A building that God has the title for. A garden that God has in his backyard, as it were. And as soon as Paul mentions that the Corinthians, of, the Christians of Corinth are God's building, um, he switches the metaphor from the garden that the apostles are sowing seed in. So verse 9 is like a hinge verse, okay? He says, you are God's field, which I've kind of been using that analogy, and God's building, verse 9. And then in verses 10 to 15, he elaborates on that. Okay, you see, see how verse 9 kind of hinges the two metaphors, the two pictures? 
He's, you're like a field, church. And you're like a garden. And we, all, we worked in you as apostles. Oh, and you're like a building. It's like a garden temple, which we've talked about as a church before with the Garden of Eden, the garden temple of God, where God dwelled with men, walked with them, they walked with him in his presence. That's why later temples had all sorts of garden imagery stitched on the wall, pomegranate leaves, and all these things, garden temples fill the ancient world, not just in Israel. Everyone trying to get back to Eden, that garden temple where we meet with God. And here Paul says, you're a garden and you're a temple. You're the people of God. So now he's going to elaborate on that. Because, reason three, church leaders serve the church of God as God's construction workers. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. What Paul means here is that he preached Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus as the foundation for the Corinthian church to be built upon. As a song we sometimes sing, says... The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation. Paul preached Jesus. Others now have come along and begun building on top of that foundation that was already laid. I want you to picture this with me. All right? Imagine that someone builds a foundation for a mobile home. The home's coming. They build a foundation for it first, right? It's perfectly square. It's a great foundation. Rock solid. Then they hire someone to build or put that mobile home on the foundation. <coughs> what happens if the guy's a complete slob, backs in, and puts it so that the back half is hanging halfway off the foundation? Maybe not half, maybe just even a few feet. What's going to happen to that house over the next year? going to sag. It might not completely collapse in the first year, but that whole back floor is going to eventually sag because whoever built on top of it didn't do a good job. The foundation was great, but the builder after did not do well. That's what Paul's saying. The foundation of the church is already laid. The church has a great foundation. The foundation for the church is Jesus. Other builders have come along and have built upon the foundation of Christ, teaching these Christians how to live and love like Jesus, to live in line with Jesus, straight up on the foundation, not hanging off the foundation so that their lives sag, but built on Jesus, in line with the word of Jesus. These teachers have come and they're supposed to teach Christians to build their lives on the Lord they are working on God's temple, this building that God dwells in by his spirit. That's the picture. And the foundation of the temple is the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ. They just, every pastor, every leader, every church leader, every disciple maker that comes along, every evangelist that leads somebody to the Lord, that's seeking to lead somebody to the Lord, they are like working on their little tiny piece of the wall. On a construction project that spans millennia. In the ancient world, they actually had a little bit of a category for this. You know when they would go to build these palaces and cathedrals? They would take lifetimes to build. Like, whoever started the project as the GC, the general contractor, rarely lived to see the end of it. These things took so long. If you go to Europe and you see these palaces, you say, even construction projects like our Brooklyn Bridge took a really long time, right? That's what Paul's saying. We're just working on one little part of the wall. It's God's project. He's the general contractor who lives forever. And this building project continues until his return. He says in verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, which if you're going to build a temple, that's what you build it with. Gold, silver, costly stones. Okay? 
or wood, hay, or straw. Are you going to build a temple with wood, hay, and straw? Maybe wood. There was some beautiful wood in the temple of old, but definitely not hay and straw. Yeah, like a thatched house temple? No, that's not going to stand the test of time. Um, he says, their work will be shown, verse 13, for what it is, because the day, in chapter 4, verse 5, we learn this day is the return of Jesus. 4, verse 5 says that. The day will bring this work to light. It will be revealed with fire. The sign of end time judgment, purification at the end time when Jesus returns. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it has been burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Okay, imagine with me this. All right, here's a picture of this. Imagine if you spent $50,000 on a well, a septic system, and a solid foundation for a new home. And then you've got a great foundation laid. You're 50 grand into this. Then you hired me to come and build a home on top of it. Imagine I'm a builder. And I tell you, I can build a home in one night. I show up at 8 p.m. after the sun sets. And I show up with a massive team of people. And when the sun rises, your home will be built. And so I show up, and I build the home in one night. And as the day brings the night's activities to light, you roll into your driveway, and the quality of the work is revealed. I might still be a home builder after that, but my dumb choice to do shoddy work would get out in the community, right? I would lose my reputation as a builder. I might still be a builder. I still can build stuff. It doesn't. My identity as a builder doesn't go away, but I'm not going to get the reward of being paid. You're not going to pay. You're going to. Yeah, you ain't getting my check. Okay. My. You're going to. You have to pay me to remove this now. <laughs> um, this is similar to the image that Paul's using, except the thing that will test the work of God's temple builders isn't. Literal daylight. Here he's saying it's the day of the Lord. The light of the Lord's coming, which all over the Bible is talked about as a day of fire. Purification of type fire. Preachers must be careful what material we build with. We're working on a temple project that spans the lifetimes of thousands of preachers. We sung about it earlier. I don't know if you catch that. Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you, okay? It says martyr's blood. You know what a martyr is? It means it's a witness, somebody who has died for their faith. Martyr's blood stains each page of the Bible. They have died for this faith. Jesus was so real that they died for him. They gave their life for him, which is what all of us are called to do. We live our lives, we pour out our lives for Jesus. Hear them call through the years, we say. Heed these words and hold them dear. Construction project that spans the lifetime of thousands of martyrs and preachers and teachers and Christians who just want to help other people follow Jesus. And on the last day, the quality of our little section of the wall, what are you building with your life? The quality of that will be revealed. Did you teach people? And I'm not just talking to pastors or church leaders at this point. All of us. Did we talk, talk to people about Jesus? Did we live in a way that showed people Jesus? With the precious gold and silver of Jesus? Or did we teach them with the straw and hay-like wisdom of the world? We'll close with a few applications. At New Creation Church... Here at our church, my job, Carl's job, as your leaders, is to serve you. That's actually why a pastor is sometimes called a minister. You ever heard that? Minister? You know what the word minister means? It just means slave. <laughs> servant. <laughs> to minister to somebody is to be their servant. We serve you the word. 
Some folks say, oh, I hate asking people for help. It's our job. And it is a joy to serve when we get to serve like Jesus. We serve the word. We serve in prayer. We serve with our time. It's a joy to serve. It truly is. To serve in the great work of helping you live and love like Jesus. Your life is like a garden that God wants fruit to grow in. And my job right now is to sow seeds in that garden. And to water them with constant encouragement and reminders and even pleas and warnings. Keep following Jesus. And this church, our church, our little body here, we're like a, a little part of the great temple that God is building. That God dwells in by his spirit. And our job, my job, is to work on my portion of the wall as best I can here in Granville. And I'll answer to God for my work. So the first thing to remember about a pastor, a church leader, which has really got Paul's specific focus here, is he's a servant of the church. He's not somebody to put on a pedestal or boast about. Second, look, look at the fact that your life, verse 9, you are God's field. This is garden imagery here. And God wants to grow fruit in the field of your life, Christian. My job, pastor, Carl's job as a fellow pastor, elder, is to help that fruit grow. The fruit of the Spirit. Paul wants to see the Spirit's fruit in the lives of believers. A piece of fruit grows from a seed planted in the garden, right? You plant a seed of an apple tree, it matures, and eventually that seed becomes a tree, and that apple tree, as it matures, then bears fruit, in keeping with what kind of seed was first planted. So an apple tree is not going to give you a banana, right? That would be kind of weird. Although they can do some pretty amazing stuff with grafting scientifically now so that all of a sudden an apple tree can produce something different. It's crazy. But the point is apple trees, the tree bears fruit in keeping with its kind. So, the seed of God's true word, when it is planted in the soil of the hearts of God's people, it produces fruit. This is how that works, okay? I want to really make this simple. All right, When the word about God's love for you the announcement, God loves you. Do you want to know how God loves you? I'm speaking word, I'm speaking a seed to you right now. And I want, like, it, this, your life is like a garden, okay? And this seed is going to go, and, and for those who have ears to hear, it will go in the garden, and it will be planted. God's word, okay, is that he loves you through the cross of Jesus. He gave his life for you on the cross. He forgave your sins. And when that seed is watered by constant reminders on Sundays, he loves you. He loves you. He really does. You start to think, if God loved me like that, when I didn't deserve it, then I can love others when they don't deserve it. How many times this week did somebody act towards you or around you in a way that made you angry? And you said, I don't want to give them what they deserve. Did that happen to you this week? I want to just pound them with my tongue. Speak to them in a way that ugh, put them in their place. Those dang liberals messing up our country. Whatever, whatever. How many times do you, I wish they'd stop. The deeper the seed of God's love for you, the word about God's love sinks into the soil of your life, the more it <clears throat> shape the way you think about people. You have been treated by God in a way that you didn't deserve. You don't pay for your sins because Jesus covered them. And the message of the of Jesus Christ and him crucified planted in the seed of the soil of your life produces the fruit of joy. If I were to lose everything that I hold dear in my life in a moment, like Job in the book of the Bible. My wife, 
my kids, my church, my health. What the cross of Jesus tells me is that I have something that can never be taken away from me. My Father loves me. And he is for me eternally. And I can say with Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Through the tears, the cross can produce fruit in your life of indestructible joy through tears. Joy that cannot be taken away. Joy that doesn't just go up and down depending on how bad the day is or what the weather's like or who hurt you. Joy that remains the same even through suffering doesn't mean you're not weeping, but you have a joy in the Lord that cannot be taken away. The fruit of God's word in your life produces joy. And the cross produces kindness. God's heart towards you is kindness and only kindness as you trust in Christ in his cross. And goodness too. And the deeper that that soaks into the soil of your life, the more your heart will be stirred with kindness towards others. And you will grow in maturity in Christ. It is a beautiful thing when someone grows kinder and more gentle with age. And it is a rare thing. Because this world has a way of sucking our joy. And of making us cynical towards people. People will always let you down. Well, it's because people are sinful and broken. And the longer you live, the more you will grow to be aware of that. And the more people say, well, I can only trust myself. So listen, you can trust your Savior Jesus. He's at work. And he doesn't give up. And he is kind. And his kindness leads you towards repentance. And the deeper that the kindness of Jesus soaks into the soil of the garden of your life, the more your heart will be stirred with kindness towards others. The seed that Paul plants doesn't change. Maturity is just learning to bear the fruit that that seed was intended to produce. It's still the same seed. Christian growth is fruit bearing over a lifetime in keeping with that seed that was planted. We could go on and talk more and more about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of faithfulness that's worked in our hearts to keep our promises when we come, the more we come to trust and treasure the steadfast faithfulness of Jesus, that he always keeps his word, and the gentle, the love of Jesus, the, we'll be more faithful in our lives to keep our promises. And the more that the gentleness and humility of Jesus strikes us and captures our hearts, the more we will grow in gentleness and humility go on and on. There's other fruits that Paul has talked about in some of his letters. But I just want to close with this. This final thing. Um, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a leader, one of my main jobs is to hold up before you the diamond of Jesus and his cross every single Sunday and to apply it to your life and to my life in various ways that the text itself calls for. That's what all the letters of the New Testament are about. They are saying, Jesus died and rose again for your sins and here's what that means for your life. And they're calling Christians to walk in light of that. So becoming mature as a Christ follower, isn't achieving necessarily some higher status of Christian living. Maturity in Christ is fruit bearing. It's bearing much fruit in your life. The fruit that the seed of God's word was intended by God to produce. All right. So, as you look at your life, and you might say, as I do sometimes, Lord, I wish there was more fruit. I wish that there was more love and joy and peace.
peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control in my life. And the answer to how, how do I get more of that isn't be self-controlled, be loving, be kind, be gentle, be patient. No, that will never, never work. I'll tell you the only way that those things will grow in your life is remembering the cross of Jesus. Only the power of the cross and the wisdom of the cross can so grab someone's heart that it produces that kind of fruit over a lifetime. That's one of the reasons we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week. Because we want to hold in our hands and taste with our mouth. Jesus loves me and gave his life for me. We want to feel that. We want to feel that together. I'm going to close in prayer and then I'm going to have Carl come up and uh, lead us through the Lord's Supper. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. And I pray with all my heart right now that the seed of the word about Jesus and his cross and his love would sink deep into the soil of our hearts, each one of us. And that it would bear fruit. Lord, if there's anything that's keeping us from bearing fruit, any strongholds of sin and of flesh in our lives, I pray that you would help us to declare war on that by the power of your Spirit. That we would clear the ground for the seed of the Word to go deep. Pray that we would love like Jesus, that we would be gentle like Jesus, kind like Jesus, merciful and compassionate like Jesus, patient like Jesus self-controlled, like Jesus, gentle, like Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would represent Jesus in a beautiful way. Father, I pray with all my heart that if anyone here does not know Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see his a head filled with knowledge about Jesus cannot save. But a heart that has been grasped by the beauty of Christ and treasures him above all things. I mean that, Lord, is what we ask for. I pray that you would grab our hearts with Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.